are listening to the Metal Gains Podcast. I am host Verna Mullins. And I'm host Matt Russell. Today we are going to talk about alcoholism and addiction. And we are going to hear Matt's story. I'm a recovering addict. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been in recovery for about two and a half years now. What's your poison? <laughs> What's my poison? You cutting straight to it. Uh, my poison, at, at first it was just alcohol, and then it became pills, at first benzos, and then just about anything. Why alcohol? Why do you think that it was so enticing um, for you? Why do you think that that was your drug of choice? Well, it wasn't enticing at first. It, it wasn't until I went through my first bout of depression, and it, it just became... It became a Band-Aid for me. Uh, it, it started just to get away from the feelings that I had in the moment. And eventually it became a crutch. And I was just more comfortable in my own skin when, when I was drunk. Can you explain the feeling that it gave you? Yeah. I, instantaneous relief from emotional turmoil. And it was just a way for me to cope when I didn't have healthy coping mechanisms. For whatever reason, I, I did not have the emotional toolbox to deal with things like depression, loneliness, the challenges that... Transitioning into adulthood. It, exactly, yeah. There were points in my life where I was a social party drinker, uh, as I'll explain later. The industry I worked in was just rife with that. But I wasn't a lone drinker. I, drinking was an activity in and of itself. I would look forward to going home and just drinking. I could be staring at a wall. I just liked the thoughts that went through my mind. It made me feel funny and powerful and smart in my own head. It, it, it allowed me to look at myself through rose-tinted glasses. I liked myself better. I liked myself. I liked the way I thought of myself more when I was intoxicated. Is this episode hard for you? Is it going to be hard for you to tell your story? Uh, no, I mean, we work together. You know, you know, I'm a peer support specialist. You hired me. You interviewed me. You know that I talk about this all of the time. It's just what's hard about it is this is not a story that can be told from one perspective. I was difficult to deal with for loved ones, for friends, for coworkers. Um I lashed out. I was never physically abusive, but I was emotionally manipulative. Um, and I, I could treat people in a manner that they certainly did not deserve. And that's hard. Mm -hmm. Because I, I feel like to tell the story accurately, it needs to include all of these points of view, which would be impossible. It would be a 30 day long podcast episode but i do include interviews with my brother and my dad and later on you'll hear a, a couple of clips from my sponsor and i'm so glad they they agreed to do this because especially for for my family it, it is kind of difficult to re relive some of these moments but i you know i think they recognize that that i'm doing better, that I'm working on it. And, you know, how could I ever 
make amends with my mother or my father or my brother or my stepbrothers, my sister. You do it through what's called making a living amends. And that's by living your life every day in a manner that they can see that you're doing better, that you're trying every day. And in that way, I think I have made amends to the mm-hmm. people in my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm taught that the only way to stay sober is to help other people stay sober. So you're going to continue that today. By telling this story? By telling your story. Yeah. And here is Matt's recovery story. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to tell my whole life story here. Uh, I'm not going to start August 30th, 1985. It was a stormy Friday, late summer, when a child was born. No, I'm not going to start like that. The Cliff Notes... I was an alcoholic for probably about a decade, a drug addict for a year. My addiction, it started in Ohio. It followed me to Chicago and Key West, Florida, and back to Ohio. I hit rock bottom a number of times, actually, because really there is no rock bottom. Even when you're in the basement, you can pick up a shovel and keep digging, and the, the most dangerous physically my addiction got was in Key West. And it coincided with a Category 5 hurricane and complete chaos and devastation outside uh, of myself and inside. But even that wasn't enough. I, I had to hit really a spiritual rock bottom years later. And that's finally what what did my addiction in, knock on wood. Uh And yeah, here we go. I am pretty certain I didn't invent the phenomenon of leaning on booze after a breakup, after heartbreak. Uh, But that's kind of how my heavy drinking started. I didn't drink heavily in college, really. It was afterwards. I was in Columbus, Ohio. I had moved there upon graduating and... Now I realize that I, I was experiencing what would be many bouts of depression, but this was the first, and I I just did not have the coping mechanisms to deal with it in a healthy manner. I retreated inside of myself, and I would drink a, a six-pack of beer pretty much most nights of the week by myself, and I was almost... Em- embracing this this sadness, this depression, and really what strikes me now as being a really cheesy, almost e- emo sort of way. I was reading beat poetry and Herman Hess novels, and it it did. I, I, it felt romantic, that sadness and that early drinking. And it never struck me that this was going to be the beginning of a pretty painful journey. I, I didn't I didn't even think that this was alcoholic drinking. So after nine months in Columbus, I moved to Chicago and I started working in the music business as an audio engineer and a stage manager. And it was the first time I really partied and I partied almost like what some people do in college where I didn't do that in college, but 
I was working in studios and clubs and theaters and being in that nightlife, uh, I can't speak for everybody, but for, for me and my coworkers, we went pretty hard with, with the drinking. And up until that point, I was pretty much only drinking alone. And so it was a lot of fun to, to let my hair down with other people like that. But while my coworkers probably went home and, and shut off for the evening, I, I would still go home and, and drink by myself pretty much every night. Uh, if I was in a relationship or dating somebody, I, I was able to curb my drinking a little bit, not for health reasons or my emotional, spiritual, physical wellness, but I didn't want other people to know how much I drank. So did you curb it or did you hide it? Um, so if I, if I had a girlfriend and I, we spent four nights a week with each other, uh, I would have a few beers um, or a few cocktails but on those three nights where I'd be alone, I, I would get drunk each one of those nights, and they wouldn't be aware of that. And it just went on like that. And then a woman I had been dating for a while, uh, when we broke up, or rather when she broke up with me, and I don't blame her because um, I, I was a mess. You know, you you might be able to hide your drinking, but you can't hide the effects of what that amount of drinking does to you. You become a pretty irritable person. Uh, if you're not drunk, you're sick from not being drunk. And it's an awful cycle. And so I probably wasn't a great person to be around. But uh, when she broke up with me, I just remember feeling like I don't have anything to look forward to when I go home. Alcohol was my best friend in that moment. And it got to a point where I would look forward to going home and getting drunk. Mm -hmm. And that started probably like a year and a half period where I would go home and drink a bottle of whiskey and a six pack of tall boy, like 24 ounce beers every single night. And that will pretty much get you blackout drunk. That's when, you know, there's that, that, that phrase, uh, piss the bed drunk, um, and I would. I I would pee the bed often, as embarrassing as that is to admit. But uh, I did my laundry a lot. <laughs> I washed my bedding all of the time. I didn't let anybody in my apartment. I became like this s secretive person. Um, I knew I was out of control. And there was one other person in my life who had an idea of how much I was drinking uh, she didn't have the full picture, but she had enough of the picture to be justifiably terrified for me. And she offered me the opportunity to stay with her for a couple of nights to sober up, to get clean for the first time. And it, it was the first time that she, this friend tried to help me and she tried a number of times over the years and neither one of us knew how dangerous that could be for somebody who drank as much as I did. Um, you can have seizures, you can have strokes, you can have heart attacks. 
the withdrawal from alcohol can kill you. And we didn't know that. And I did. I started, I started having hallucinations. It felt like the skin around my skull was pulled too tight. I, I would close my eyes and I could still see through my eyelids is how I felt. I, I was hallucinating. And it scared her bad. And it should have scared me, but I wasn't fully conscious for, for all of it. And it scared her so bad that she had to stop being my friend for a little bit. And so if you're hearing this and you do want help, you are drinking an excessive amount, please reach out to a healthcare professional because in some cases, uh, it's just not safe to stop cold turkey. I still wasn't calling myself an alcoholic, though, after all of that, which is crazy. It's it's just wild how in denial you can be. Uh, but I knew, I knew I needed to try something. And it's the craziest thing to say out loud, but I decided, hey, I know what will help me drink less if I move to Key West, Florida. Um, <laughs> but that's what I did. My brother, my sister-in-law, and their two children lived in Key West, and they are both healthy people. Um, and I just thought being around positive, healthy people could help me. And, you know, I started moving all of my stuff back home to Ohio to prep for the big move to Florida. And uh, that's when I had my first panic attack. And that, that really changed my life in so many ways that was like for me to this day uh that was like a burning bush talking to moses that that was a that was a spiritually defining moment for me my body was just like my body and my mind was like hey matt we're gonna shut down for a little bit (laughs) like you we can't trust you behind behind the steering wheel anymore for those of you who don't know what a panic attack is, God bless you, <laughs> because I don't want people to know what a panic attack is because they're awful. According to the Mayo Clinic, a panic attack is a sudden episode of intense fear or anxiety and physical symptoms based on a perceived threat rather than imminent danger. It felt like somebody split my head into poured ice water into my brain, pumped adrenaline into my heart, and then all of my limbs went numb. It was wild. I thought I was having a brain aneurysm. I thought I was having a stroke. And little did I know that this was going to be a new reality for a little bit. The next five years, I was just plagued by these panic attacks. But back to moving to Key West. And actually, uh, I'm going to let my brother chime in about when I first moved down there. Fast forward to you actually getting here. I was surprised at the state you arrived in. I knew that you were deeply troubled. Um, I wasn't exactly sure why. I had no reason to expect substance abuse of any kind. You know, I could just tell you I've been through a lot and I didn't know what it was, you know. And so when you came and actually arrived after some of the panic episodes had happened, it was just surprising to me 
at everything I had missed. You know, there was a a physical sense of I don't want to say illness, but of struggle. You know what I mean? Just in your self upkeep and just your you know your candor and your um, just the way you held yourself at that time. I could tell that you were upset. And I was upset because I was a wreck. Uh, I was upset because really after the panic attack, I really began to realize I was an alcoholic. And, you know, the move did work at first. And that's not all that uncommon in, for for addicts and alcoholics is they don't want to admit they have a problem so they think oh i just need uh i just need to move i just need to be closer to family or friends or i need to get away from the the people i drink with and sometimes that does help for a little bit but the problem is is me and not whatever scenario i'm in uh, eventually eventually my problems will catch up to me no matter where I go. You know, I probably went three, four months without drinking. I I did get healthier. The The first job I got on the island was at, oddly enough, a, a health food store. And I was able to keep my poop in a group for a little bit. But then I got a job working in a club down there. I became the entertainment manager I met some other musicians. I started playing music out on the island, and slowly that that drinking lifestyle just I, I gravitate towards it, and it gravitates towards me. Alcohol was the love of my life for a long time, and we weren't going to be apart for too long. And so we got back together, and I can remember the first time after those months of not drinking, that first time... I got drunk. I literally said out loud, welcome back. I said, welcome back to me. I said, welcome back to drunk me. I was just so much more comfortable being in my own skin with, with a bottle of booze in me. But the more booze I put in myself, the more panic attacks I had. The hangover started to become atrocious. And those hangovers would cause me panic attacks and I had panic attacks in DJ booths on stage with a guitar in my hand at family events just I was not safe anywhere and I was struggling and so I went to the doctor and I didn't go to the doctor and say hey I have a drinking problem I went to the doctor and I said hey I have an anxiety problem and so the doctor prescribed me benzos for the first time. And it was the second time in my life I fell in love. The first time with alcohol, the second time with benzos. Or more specifically with Ativan, which is a benzodiazepine in the same family as Xanax and Valium and Klonopin. And I'm sure there's there's others, but... What I loved about the Ativan is not only did it get rid of the panic attacks, again, at first, but it got rid of the hangovers. And because I didn't have to deal with that anxiety with those two-day-long hangovers, I started drinking more. And I started mixing the pills with the drinking. Then I started mixing more pills with the drinking. 
And then before not too long, I'd be going through a 30-day prescription in a matter of a, of a couple of days. And you don't go back to the doctor <laughs> asking for more pills. You don't go back to the pharmacy asking for more pills. They'll, they'll know you're an addict. And so it was up to me to find more, but I couldn't always find benzos, which was awful because benzos are like alcohol. The withdrawal is awful. It's dangerous. And so through other musicians or security guys at work or people I knew throughout the community, I, I could usually find something. Uh, but oftentimes I had to fill in the gaps with with Percocet, with methadone, with any opioids I could get my hands on. And man, it, it just, it's really crazy how things got out of hand so quickly. I, I got to a point where I was waking up every day with a panic attack, every single day. I would wake up, turn on the shower, and lay in the bathtub and pray that I wouldn't die. And I, I finally told my family and my friends what was going on. N not completely. I still didn't tell anyone I was a drug addict. That was too new, even to me, to really wrap my head around it. Uh, but I did tell people I was an alcoholic. My brother took me to my first AA meeting. I, I was seeing a woman at, at the time, and she was as supportive as a partner could be. Uh, my family, my friends, everyone had my back. I, e even the club I was working at, they gave me a month of paid time off to work on myself. And I could piece together a few days, not of sobriety together, but... Uh, of not drinking. I was still taking the the pills, the benzos. I became so erratic and I pushed my partner away um, because I was lying to her. I, I was still using. I would drink behind her back. I was lying to my family. And it just went on like that for a few months until Hurricane Irma happened. And that's when this veil of secrecy uh, was removed. I was able to get off the island before the hurricane hit, but it devastated all of the Keys, Key West included. And my place was flooded. It was an awful wreck. It was like that before the hurricane because... I couldn't take care of myself. Uh, I was staying with a friend, Scott. Uh, God bless Scott. He he knew that I was trying not to drink, but but the call uh, of the addiction was, was too great. So I went back to my place, even though it was a mess. And I had a bender. That's when my brother found me. Uh, here he is talking about the, the hurricane and and w what he saw coming back to my place. And your place had been flooded with what was probably sewage water or at least contaminated water. Um, and you're staying with a friend and there was some distance between us at the time. And um, our mutual friend had called me and said, hey, man, whatever happened to your brother? I said, what are you talking about? Whatever happened to him? Well, I haven't seen him in three days. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, because I hadn't seen you at all. And I had stopped by your apartment. And it was, um, that that's the day that's hard for me. Because mm. that was, man, it was not a good situation. It was time to move, you know, it was time to mobilize and, and get some real help. So, <laughs> so that's what we did. You know what I mean? I got, uh, so, I, um, got on the phone with, with dad. I was like, yo man, it's, it's time. <laughs> we got to do this. Or we're going to lose him. You know, it was, it was that obvious and it, it was tough. And here's my dad talking about the same time period. Just prior to that, your, your brother had warned me that actually we had talked on the phone a, a number of times and he was essentially begging my help for it to help intercede because he, um, the one thing that I'll never forget is he said, Pop, I'm worried we're going to lose him. So I was making plans, calling airlines, that kind of a thing, uh, and I hightailed it down there ASAP. I knew that I was there just in the nick of time mm -hmm. and uh, that we had to get you the hell out of there. And to be safe with family and friends that understood you, that loved you, that cared for you, and we're going to help you find the right way. You'd already been, uh, you've already acknowledged you needed to find the right way, but uh, obviously at that point in your life, you had either found it and rejected it, or found it and lapsed, or just simply intended to find it, but you haven't pulled the trigger yet mm -hmm. so obviously you were in the throes of addiction and then you were in the throes of a devastating hurricane that took lives and property in the uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth i can remember walking in there and your 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 place was would have been devastated without a hurricane um the number of beer cans and and liquor bottles and things was um, unbelievable. And um, the condition of your furniture and how you were sleeping. And I mean, the whole place was just a wreck with or without the hurricanes, uh, tragic intercession there. There were, uh, God, I remember, remember there were like dead scorpions all over the place. Place. Well, that just to be clear, that was from the hurricane, yeah. not my addiction. <laughs> no, that was the name of the alcohol. <laughs> it, it was Seagram's Dead Scorpion. No, uh, right, it was. <laughs> that wasn't your fault. I just, I just wanted to make that <laughs> distinction for the listeners. <laughs> I did not have a dead scorpion addiction. <laughs> <laughs> They're hard to keep lit. They are. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, well, okay. Luck luckily we could laugh about this because the only thing that uh, the only thing that has occurred w uh, with the march of time since then is that you've gotten a grip on life and uh you are healing and uh in such a much better place than what you were when this all transpired. I moved home. I got sober for 11 months. 
I relapsed on cough syrup and I didn't get sober again for three years. That's how delicate sobriety can be for some people. And for those three years, I was living in my mom's basement and she didn't want to be interviewed for this. She has my blessing to do it. Uh, she said she wouldn't really even be able to, to listen to this episode. And I understand because I put her through hell. I was a hermit. I snuck around her basement. I would ride my bike to the liquor store so she didn't hear my car pulling out of the driveway. I was hiding bottles behind books on the bookshelf. Uh, that's when I hit my spiritual bottom. I, I realized I wasn't living a life that was worth living. And that's when I was ready. <laughs> you don't get sober until you're ready to get sober. I, I put my, my friends and my family through through hell, but it wasn't until I fully knew that I was living in a hell of my own creation that I was like, I will do anything necessary to to battle this. When you finally decided, okay, I need to get help, and I'm going to get help, what were the different modalities and treatments, uh, treatment modalities that you received? Well, I pretty much tried everything at, at first. Um, uh, I did go to therapy. I did see a psychiatrist. I had a family physician, and all of those were helpful. Um, but it, it wasn't until... I started going to a 12-step support group that it it really clicked for me. Um, I, I was an isolationist and I wasn't I wasn't going to get better until that was addressed. Uh, why I felt the need to shut off and and cocoon myself from the rest of the world. And so I, I did. I, I walked into the meeting rooms of, of AA again. Uh, I had been in, in the past, but I really approached it with an open heart this time um, because I, I, was, I was ready to do anything. And nobody walks into those types of support groups for the first time skipping because life is, is going so great. It's really hard at first to adjust because you don't have all of these substances to doll your system. And so I was having a hard time just being a regular person again. Um, and you know, he, I'm going to let my, my sponsor Dennis tell you uh, about the first time we met and maybe the state of mind I was in at that time. When we first met, how would you describe how would you describe me when I first came into the program? Struggling, <laughs> uh, vague, distant, mm. you know, very distant, and um, very unsure of yourself. You weren't upfront with you because you weren't really sure about you. You didn't really know you, mm -hmm. so you were like. Not sharing a whole lot. And he provides some insight into what that's like coming into the rooms for the first time from his own experience. I, I think the issue when I got here, it was trust. There was a 
fear, just full of fear and anxiety and didn't know who to trust, who not to trust. And the things we did weren't always nice. So we didn't know. <laughs> the things who we, we did were always nice. <laughs> what a subtle way of putting that. I love that. <laughs> we spent years of doing a lot of not nice things. Yes, we did. Yeah. You know, you know, our addiction takes us to places that is pretty ugly. Mm. You know. And I want to point out something real quick. Dennis and I do laugh often together. Uh, sometimes while we're talking about these uglier parts of our past. And you heard earlier on my dad and I laughing when he, he was talking about a dead scorpion is hard to keep lit. And, you know, my dad said something on the phone, actually, very recently to me, um, something to the effect of, you know, if you have to meet the devil, you better do it while laughing. And I, I really like that. And so, yeah, we do laugh when, when talking about this stuff, not because it's so funny, but because that's what we have to do to move on. And Dennis has been kind of like my Sherpa, my guide in in moving on and getting rid of all, all of the secrets. For me, De Dennis is kind of like a piggy bank for, for me. If I have a problem, if I have a resentment, if I feel hatred in my heart, sometimes it doesn't happen often. Sometimes it does. I I just drop that right right into Dennis. I just share it right with him. And, and in that way, I don't have any secrets. You know, I live such... We addicts in general, but I guess I should talk for me. I live such this double secret life where nobody knew me. Um, and I didn't want people to know me. And sharing all of my past guilt, my past behavior with another person makes me feel seen in a way that is so freeing. And it just takes a burden off your shoulders. It's like, somebody knows my story. It's no longer just in me. But the thing is, is you learn to do that every day. If I developed a resentment towards you at work that was just building up so much, which isn't the case, by the way. Mm -hmm. I love co-hosting with you. <laughs> if it were building up in me so bad that, that it was affecting really my state of mind, my spiritual contentment, I would hit Dennis up and be like, Dennis, here's the situation. This is what I'm feeling. This is why I think I'm feeling it. And just by unburdening yourself on a daily basis... Um, is so wonderful. I'll call Dennis and I'll just ramble. And the thing is, is Dennis does that to me too. It ha doesn't happen nearly as much as I call you for help. But sometimes he calls up. He's like, hey. And this is what you say. You say, um, you say, I'm feeling a little crazy right now, is what you say. And the first time he called me up and said, hey, I'm feeling a little crazy right now. It was such an honor. It was like, this is so cool. He needs my help. And that's just what you do. You, you go, you hang out with other addicts, you hang out with other alcoholics, and you just share a space that is intended to raise one another up. And you need that space. And, you know, in this addict's humble opinion, you know, I, I'm so lucky 
to have my family, you know, my immediate family saved my life and they are still so supportive, um, almost overwhelmingly. So, I mean, the, the work they've done, uh, to understand not only just me, but my disease has been amazing, but you can do it without such a, a supportive family. Like, like I have, um, that's why these support groups are so uh, amazing because not only the, can they help unburden me with, with my own destructive past, but they just put me on course to understand my future too, to understand really the disease of alcoholism. Uh, because for the longest time I thought, well, I'm an alcoholic. I can't help it. I'm going to go back out again. Nothing can keep me sober. This is who I am. And, you know, if I have that first drink, I'm going to have the second or the third or the fourth and so on. But if I put enough work in, I can keep myself from having that first drink. And it takes constant upkeep. And I, I do. I have to remind myself I'm an, an alcoholic constantly, uh, because my mind will do things to justify drinking. My mind will try to trick me. Uh, and that's what makes it so cunning, baffling, and powerful. The people in the support group I go to say it's a simple program for complicated people. And I, I, I do, I just have to do the work. Uh, I'm not making any of this wisdom up. There is just a huge collective of people out there who are sober and are willing to share their wisdom with me. And one day, I, I hope I can pass along that wisdom the, the best that I can. And so, you know, I just keep trucking along and, and life is good. I get paid to be positive for a living at the Connection Center uh, in Bowling Green. I'm a peer support specialist. I just share what works for me. And if that doesn't work for you, I'll do my best to, to help you figure out what does work for you. But like, let's try together, you know? Well, the bottom line is, you know, we always say at any meeting, keep coming back till the miracle happens, you know? Mm -hmm. And the miracle is us. Mm -hmm. If we stay clean and sober, we just, and you know what the line is, and I hear it so often at the noon meeting is, we don't have to stay sober the rest of our life. We just need to stay sober to midnight tonight. That's it. One day. That's all. And we worry about tomorrow when tomorrow comes. And I can't change yesterday. So that's where we're in. Lovely. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. We were looking up statistics about alcoholism and addiction, and we came across the fact that 100,000 people die every year of alcoholism, and that's pretty sobering in itself. But then we came across an even better statistic, and that was between 20 and 23 million people are currently in recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction.
And it just it's such a great indication how recovery is possible. And it's also why my dad and my, my brother agreed to do this, because they know firsthand that recovery is possible. And, you know, to tell the story of recovery, you have to recall some pretty ugly details about yourself, but it's worth it. It's worth to to share this story. Um, but yeah, guys, th- thanks for listening. Uh, I am Matt Russell. I'm a producer host, and I made the music for this episode. And I'm Verna Mullins, the other host and producer. Chris Pfeiffer is the executive producer of the Mental Gains podcast. And hit us up at wgte.org slash mental gains. Thanks for, thanks for listening. And if you have any ideas for any future episodes, please let us know. See you later. Bye. If you or a loved one is looking for help for alcoholism, please call the National Helpline 1-800-662-HELP. This service provides referrals to local treatment facilities, support groups, and community-based organizations. WGTE. Voices around us. WGTE is supported in part by American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.